really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and basically all I can find all about the world of my favorite sport, rugby union. I am your host, David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. You're always welcome to get in touch. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum, and I imagine, you know, it's not that difficult to find other ways as well. If you haven't yet, please pause to take a, a second just to give me a nice little review for the show. It would really help us grow, and I would be very grateful. So lots and lots to get to this week, obviously. So let's start the show. Okay, everybody, this week, current updates, news, and thoughts of the week are all on hold. First, because I really just don't have that much to report, but mostly because there's just so much great action this weekend. I mean, New Zealand is bumping right now with the NPC playoffs, playing second fiddle to the opening weekend of the 2021 Rugby World Cup. I am overflowing with excitement, so let's get right to it all. So that, of course, brings us to our reviews, and naturally, we'll be starting with the Rugby World Cup. The 2021 World Cup kicked off on Friday night, for me at least, and uh, it featured South Africa versus France. Right off the bat, South Africa looked physically overmatched. They were, you know, falling off people they were trying to tackle. They just couldn't get a stop to save their lives. France got themselves 19 points in 19 minutes, but after that, things sort of settled down a little bit. And that would remain 19-0. Uh, that would remain the score going into the break. South Africa finally got on the board, while France kind of fizzled out a little bit. And uh, the air seemed to have gone out of this one a bit. So with just about a quarter hour left, it was 5-19. to 19. But just as I wrote that, the French finally broke through for the first time in the second half, did so again in short order. And this one would end up 5-40, to 40, and a bit of an odd one for me. So next up in the opening round of the pool stages was 21st ranked Fiji, looking for a massive upset against world number one England, but it just wasn't in the cards. I mean, to no one's surprise, I'm sure. At the beginning, the Fijiana defense was stalwart. England were ahead, but couldn't seem to pull away, only leading by 10 at the break. Naturally, two quick scores early in the second half brought it to 14 to 36, and oof, that was the beginning of the end for the 21st ranked team in the world. By the three-quarter mark, the English were up huge, 14 to 60, and Fiji looked gassed at that point. They got themselves a last-minute try to hopefully restore a bit of confidence, but by the end, oh my word, 19 to 84 was the colossal tally for the tournament favorites. Consider your warning shots officially fired. Then, oh my word, I was so worked up for this one. My USA Eagles were facing Italy. And I have to say, I was a little bummed that A, we got a much smaller venue for this matchup, B, they didn't come close to filling it, and C, the replay I watched skipped the anthems. Are you even kidding me? It's a freaking World Cup. On the flip side, of course, at least Holly Davidson was officiating, so I guess I'll take what I can get. Uh, by the way, our white kit is so much better than the others I've seen so far, so that was a good sign, I thought. As for the match itself, it too was a bit frustrating. It felt like we were sort of dominating in every phase, but it didn't translate into points. After 27 minutes, we did hold a 5 to nil lead, precarious to say the least. <sighs> okay, this ended up getting a little wonky, folks. So at one point, 
An Italian player outright shoulder-charged an American ball carrier. It dislodged the ball, Italy recovered it, scored, and the momentum completely shifted. Not only was there no call, the comms did that thing where they'd show a replay and go on about, wow, what a hit, so good. And I'm like, no, that's not a good hit because there was zero attempt to tackle. She didn't even lift her arms to pretend she was going to wrap. She just did an NFL-style shoulder smash. It absolutely should have been a penalty in our favor. And instead, they took the lead, gathered all the momentum, and went on to win 10-22. to I was feeling so salty about it that my notes kind of just became a massive rant about the great injustices in the world. And when I read it back, I sounded like an absolutely insane person. So I decided to skip all that, swallow down the bile in my mouth, and just congratulate Italy on a good game. They definitely got away with an egregious foul and it effectively robbed us, but hey, you're supposed to suck it up and move on, so I will. Ugh. Anyway, the penultimate game for the opening weekend featured Japan taking on number three Canada. Canada, ooh, they looked very powerful. And I don't know, I've been searching for the word resolute, perhaps? They didn't show a lot of fireworks, but just worked so hard on both sides of the ball. I mean, they are awesome. I think this is the first time I've ever seen them, actually. So they're led by 22 points at halftime. They shut out Japan for something like 62 minutes in this one, winning big 41-5 to by the end. Very impressive was my semi-dim-witted comment in my notes. Uh, and then, of course, possibly the biggest match of the opening round in terms of implications for the knockout stages, it was Wales facing Scotland. And I'm not going to lie, I was still so angry about the non-calls in the USA game that it was difficult to really get into it, especially once things started to swing in Wales' favor. So neither team was scoring a heck of a lot anyway. Scotland couldn't get a second try until maybe 14 minutes remained, trailing seemingly for an eternity. 15-10 to 10 at that point, sloppy play from both sides in the final 10 minutes, and it just felt like Scotland couldn't get clicking the way they should. So Jasmine Joyce, number 13 for Wales, got correctly pinged with only a couple minutes to go, giving the Scots a player advantage and line-out opportunity close in. Going out wide, Scotland scored in the corner to level things up, but I just instantly, I just had a feeling it was highly unlikely they'd be adding the extras from that angle. And as it soared wide by a mile, the comms graciously said, ah, just missed it. So in response, the clock winding down, Wales would go through 18 phases, 20 phases, 22 phases, and after 23 phases, they got the arm up signaling advantage, and in 84 minutes, it was down to an absolute gimme for the kick. Ugh, just too simple. Wales win, and frankly, I don't want to talk about it. I honestly wish uh, that I had watched these games in, in reverse order right now, because I'm just beside myself. It definitely sort of left a bad taste in my mouth. So let's all just move on, shall we? Okay, my friends, up next, we have to go with the NPC and the quarterfinals. So early, early, early Friday morning began a long list of fixtures for this weekend, starting with the NPC, and it was North Harbor taking on Auckland, 42 times capped for the All Blacks. Patrick Tuhupalatu got his first start for the visitors in four years. Both lineups were just a, a who's who of Kiwi rugby. Auckland, of course, featuring beloved free jack uh, Terrell Peta coming off the bench wearing number 20. North Harbor had only two playoff games at home prior to tonight, losing both times to Otago. So not only that, Auckland came into this one a perfect 5-0 against Harbor in the playoffs, winning four semifinals and the 94 final. little side stat for you. Uh, Bryn Gatland hasn't just led the NPC in scoring this year. He's also second for try assists and first for attacking kicks regained. What a player. Bryn, you know what you might like? The beautiful foliage here in New England. So the game itself has started a little bit loose. The comms describing it as helter-kelter, which totally cracked me up. 
Uh, eventually, the hosts figured out their attack, got two tries in quick succession to end the half, and were leading 15-6 to at the break, with Gatlin staying in the lockers after a knee to the face. Auckland gained momentum, and it was the aforementioned Terrell Peta getting the tri- uh, the tying try, almost the trying try, uh, with about six minutes left to play. Such a good match to start the playoffs. Driving with under a minute to go, Akira Yuane could have been called for a slightly forward pass, but it was play on, and Auckland got a penalty for offsides with an easy to kick, uh, an easy kick to seal this one on the road. Harry Plummer slaughtered it. It was heartbreak for the home side as their playoff curse continued. 18 to 21. Ouch. The second match, of course, this weekend was Wellington hosting Hawks Bay. I didn't have many notes for this one, but, I mean, this is why the NPC is so amazing. It was an 18-point shutout at the 51st minute, but then it was 18-7, to then it was 18-14, to and then right on the 71-minute mark, the visitors looked like they were just about to close this one out victorious. However, Wellington, they dug deep, they showed why they were at home for these playoffs, took back the lead, eventually were able to seal the deal. 28-21 to was the final in a scorcher of a match. So, next up, it was league-leading Canterbury and their 9-1 record at home to face upstart Northland, who snuck into the playoffs by way of two consecutive wins to close out the year and were looking to play the role of giant killers on a gorgeous, sunny day. Northland set the stage with an awesome haka, something I haven't seen them do before, with a challenge and a call upon their ancestors and the spirits who guard their people, the Tanifa, a word I was shocked to discover my spell check actually knew somehow. Anyway, Canterbury, meanwhile, they didn't look interested in having man or spirit get in their way. It took them just two minutes to score their first try. Warning bells began ringing, but it wasn't a blowout. The home team up 17-3 to going into the break. The visitors, however, had a ton of heart. And with their host stalled out at the 20-point mark, they clawed back to within seven with about a quarter hour to go. Of course, Canterbury are a perfect 9-0 and at Orange Theory Stadium for playoff games and haven't dropped a home match in the postseason since 2007. So down seven with less than five minutes, I was shocked to see Northland signal for the posts rather than going for the corner. I had a feeling that was definitely going to backfire. And sure enough, Canterbury then got a penalty of their own. And that would do it. 23 to 16 at the end. Very, very strange decision for me. A real sort of letdown at the end there. Finally, to close out the quarterfinals, for what's been an incredible season, frankly, it was, of course, Waikato at home for the Bay of Plenty. Waikato would draw first blood. And you can tell by the fact that I'm using tired expressions like that that I was super fired up. So I watched my, I guess you could say my hometown hero, Bodine Waka, win a championship last year for Waikato. And then he hopped on a plane, came back to become MVP of the MLR, lead us to the best season we've ever had. So Waikato just sort of feels right when I'm trying to decide who to root for, you know? Anyway, Sam Kane was sort of just chilling in the audience, wearing a nice little Bay of Plenty windbreaker, and looking like he was really hoping they'd be like, uh, Sam, can you come in by any chance? Anyway, this one was a really tight one, as advertised. At the half-hour mark, it was tied at seven. Though Damian McKenzie had given away three from what was usually an easy spot for him, it was 14-10 to 10 then in an intense affair. Really good stuff. It was very much anyone's game to claim. Bay of Plenty took the lead 14-16 to 16 just before the 50-minute mark, and this one was getting so good. With their fourth consecutive penalty, the visitors were up 14 to 19. A huge kick from McKenzie got them within two, and another brought them a one-point lead with just 17 minutes to play. Quick side note, how much do you think Damien McKenzie regrets ever starting his whole I-have-to-smile-before-every-kick routine? He looks so clearly tired of it, and, you know, frankly, so are we all. Can we, you know, somehow give him official permission to just kind of stop that? Anyway, then, after what I... 
would have called a forward pass and what the comms called a little bit wonky. Bay took uh, retook the lead 20 to 24 after doinking the extras off the post and then Kapow, a stolen pass and a massive breakaway down the sideline for an 11 point lead with only six and a half on the clock. Another penalty then with only a minute left in Waikato champions last year would go down at home to Bay of Plenty 27 to 34. What a crazy season. It's been so good. Okay, switching gears and flying all the way back up to France and the top 14, we started off with Cast versus Montpellier. That would begin round six for the top 14. Cast, they were looking to revenge their loss to this very team last June. And as we've come to expect, the visitors just didn't seem to care as much as the home side, making some silly errors and really just not clicking the way we know they can. Cast, on the other hand, brought their A game and would, in the end, double up their guests, 26-13. to 13. And then Bayon versus La Rochelle. I mean, this one was awesome. Just back and forth with the tiniest of margins exchanged, 13-8 to eight at halftime. And by the way, I finally learned it's Bayon, not Bayon. So good for me, I guess. Um, the next thing I had written down was 154, mascot alert. <laughs> so for a moment, I thought I might have just got, I don't know, blacked out and woken up during a Brumbies match, but no, the Bayon mascot is in fact a, I guess it's pronounced Potok Pony, named Potoka. So you all know me by now, so you can easily guess what happened next. Yep, full marks everybody, I absolutely did look it up and discovered the Potok, or Potoka, uh, is an endangered, semi-feral breed of pony, native to the Pyrenees of the Basque country, uh, country in France and Spain. Uh, it is considered an ancient breed of horse, particularly well adapted to the harsh mountain areas it traditionally inhabits. Once common, it is endangered through habitat loss, mechanization, and crossbreeding, but efforts are increasingly made to safeguard the future of this breed. It is considered iconic by the Basque people. Okay, everybody, admit it. That's why you actually tune in every week. The esoteric and highly outdated pop culture references and the inside info on rugby mascots all over the globe. I suddenly had the crazy thought, maybe I should replace one of my sort of weekly segments with a mascot watch type thing, but I don't know. We'll see. That is another half-baked idea. Anywho, back to the game. And uh, if you read, by the way, the Irish Examiner, for instance, you will see blame for this defeat pointed directly at, at Teddy Toma, which seemed like a shocking development given, given how good he's been over the past several years. I, and I know this is absurd, but I swear. His form has not been the same ever since cutting his hair. Bald Teddy is just not as solid as Dreadlock Teddy. I'm sorry, it's just a fact. To briefly quote the article I refer to, quote, his in-goal fumble resulted in a try for Racing 92's Francis Saili uh, last week. This time, the winger's frailties on the back foot were again laid bare as he hesitated one awkward bounce too many before trying to gather a clever kick from Camille Lopez. The ball jagged sideways just enough and with Toma flat-footed, Guillaume Martok scored in the corner. Last week, Toma had a chance to redeem himself and took it with a try as La Rochelle fought back to win at Marcel de Flandre. Uh, this week, he wasn't given the option. He was replaced shortly afterwards, unquote. By the end, La Rochelle were more than doubled up by their middle-of-the-road hosts, losing 29-13, further flattening the overall field on the league table. So up next was Toulon versus Brieve, and I'm just going to tell you, it was a bit of a stinker. I'm, so, I'm sorry to say it, but it absolutely was. The home team thoroughly obliterating their opponents with seven tries to none, winning just a, an absolute laugher of a game, 47-0. Yikes. There was no audio of any kind for this one, by the way, so, I mean, maybe that was for the best in the long run. Stade Francais versus Perpignan was the second match this round where there was no audio at all. 
And, you know, yet another bang up weekend, a weekend by Blow Rugby. Good job, guys. Uh, the other thing it had in common with the previous match was it was a massive blowout for the home team, though in this case, the visitors actually managed to score with a 52 to 3 line at the end, a remarkably similar result. Kind of strange. And, you know, out of what I've seen, an emphatic 4 and 0 for home teams to start this round. So Racing 92 versus Poe was next for me. And, you know, who had their money on three in a row with no audio at all? Because you just nailed it. Actually, not quite fair. Eerily, there was technically some audio later on in the match. It kind of sounded like you were sitting next to someone who was listening to it with headphones on while eating potato chips. I haven't any idea how they managed to sink even lower, but I will never doubt them again. So as for the game itself, as I've been saying, Rassing just don't look right this year. They are are officially not a threatening team this year. There, I said it. It was two kicks apiece for the first half. Rassing managed a third kick after only 50 minutes had gone by. Uh, I should say only their third kick after 50 minutes had gone by. Uh, inexplicably, that was when this voice came in, in French, of a single commentator. It just sort of erratically came in and out. Um, it just made things feel even more like you were trapped in a German art house film or something. It was bizarre. Uh, fortunately, it was a bit of magic from Finn, who has not looked his usual happy self of late. Uh, not too many smiles on Finn's faces during this season, along with an equally magic bounce that got his team the first try of the match. That was late, around the 67-minute mark, and that seemed to sort of open things up a bit. By the end, it was a good old-fashioned double-up, Rassing 26, Poe 13. So Toulouse versus Claremont was next. Historically, it was going to be a tough one for Claremont, who, over the course of 30 visits, had won only three times, the last of which was eight years ago. Meanwhile, in the latest headline from Captain Obvious Monthly, Damien Penault is really effing good at rugby. In fact, this match was just an absolute who's who of the national team, just stars everywhere. And while the hosts looked dominant, it was by no means a runaway. By the way, the halftime hooter there is like an air raid silent. It is jarring how loud that sucker is. Anyway, at that point, it was 20 to 10, and the rest of the way, it was all Toulouse. Holding the visitors scoreless in the second half, the home side just went on a rampage with Gemini scoring a rub-your-face-in-it try as the clock went red. As the comms said, absolutely laced with talent is this Toulouse team. Yeah. And the final score was a massive 46-10. The home team, their streak continuing unabated 6-0 for the weekend thus far. So to close out the round, of course, it was Lyon versus Bordeaux-Begla. And, it, you know, it looked like we might finally break that little home field edge for this round as Bordeaux led maybe two-thirds of the way. But Lyon, they suddenly seemed to remember, oh, hey, we're at home. We're not supposed to lose here. And they immediately just took control. They held a slim lead late, and the visitors looked in position to take it back. But a bad turnover led to a lightning strike to take the lead to two scores. And then, desperate with only about five minutes left on the night and the weekend, an intercepted pass produced an icing-on-the-cake score for Lyon. The Bordeaux players' agony just writ large all over their faces. As the final whistle signaled the end of round six, the score read 36-21, to 21, completing the full sweep for the home teams this weekend. No wonder the league table is so tight right now. With the exceptions of Toulouse at the top and Poe at the bottom, the other teams might as well be, and might be at 500 the rest of the year. Either way, that would close out yet another remarkable weekend in France. I am loving my first season watching the top 14, the top Cateurs, as they love saying it for some reason. Okay, meanwhile, we'd moved on to round five in the Gallagher Premiership, and we began with a serious blowout on Friday. Bristol just got utterly smashed by Exeter. They were down 10 at halftime, but ended up losing by a whopping 36, 14 Bears points to the half century for the visitors. Scouza. 
Oh, by the way, you'll recall us talking about how big home field advantage is in the top 14. And this week, it was almost the opposite in the Prem. I started to sense, starting with this match and then moving to Bath at home for Gloucester, where the Cherry and Whites also came away road victors, despite being shut out in the second half. The three tries they converted uh, in the first 40 minutes would stand up, despite the host slowly inching closer. In fact, it really felt like if the game was, I don't know, five or ten minutes longer, Bath surely would have gone on to win, but... It wasn't in the cards today. 17-21 to 21 was the end score for this one. And is this Gloucester's year? Sorry, I think that's just a like a nervous tick. It just kind of comes out every now and then. It's, it's like I have Tourette's in a weird Gloucester way. Anyway, Leicester, of course, we're back home taking on sale. And I don't know, there's something wrong perhaps with the Tigers this year. Losing last week and then again this week to the Sharks. Much like Gloucester in the previous match, uh, Leicester couldn't find a single point in the second half. A, a period in which Sale managed 14 it was our third road win in a row, 16 to 26 at the double whistle. If you know what's wrong with Lester at this stage, by the way, please reach out and let me know. I, I just can't put my finger on it. Maybe I'm just overreacting. Has it not, have we not seen enough yet? Um, are they just kind of warming up to it? Either way, of course, your thoughts are always more than welcome. So next up, Newcastle welcomed the looming dark presence that is Saracens to Kingston Park, which I recommend we now rename The Woodshed because Saris took him out there and laid a serious beatdown on him after they bullied the Falcons to the tune of a 26-point shutout in the first half. They did take their, you know, their proverbial boot off the throat and Newcastle actually outscored them in the second half 14 to 8, but I mean, you can do the math. It was another impressive road victory for Saracens who looked to have their sights set squarely on one goal, reclaiming that championship trophy. By the way, another little question for the for the listeners. Do any of you know, does the Premiership Rugby Trophy have a name? Just curious. It seems like eventually all these cups and trophies, after a while, gain, you know get somebody's name attached to them, or maybe like an event or a place. Um, I've just never heard anyone mention it, and I would really love to know. Anyway, finally, for this week in the Prem, Wasps were back in action at home, taking on Northampton Saints, and it was yet more bad news for the beleaguered home team, leading by a converted try at the break before letting their guests edge past them very late. It was yet another ugly scene, almost scripted to the T last week, by the way, when a player who got knocked out cold awoke to the sight of a red card. This with about a quarter hour to go and a penalty try ensued. The fired-up Saints quickly scored again to take a lead they wouldn't relinquish and got an exciting win away from home, defeating their hosts 36-40 to by just that narrow margin. Phew! Okay, and for the record, as I alluded to, all of the fixtures in the top 14 the home teams went 7-0, and and all five fixtures in the Prem, the home teams went 0-5. Is this some sort of like microcosmic statement about the difference in cultures between France and England? Uh, no, it isn't. Okay, next up, it was round four in the United Rugby Championship this week. Friday had two huge ones, sharing a kickoff time. Uh, I ended up starting with Edinburgh at the goddamn hell stadium to face the Lions, and Boy, oh boy, I thought the officiating was highly suspect, to put it nicely. So I admit it's very possible that I have, you know, a slanted view when either of the Scottish teams are playing, but it, it did seem like Edinburgh just got shafted approximately once every 10 minutes. In any event, uh, kicking was again an issue for them with even Buffelli, who was back, and nice to see him, missing what looked like a gimme for him at least, while the Lions couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Two unconverted tries with the uh, total scoring at halftime in a very physical contest, of course. Stuart McAnally going off very early and not coming back, by the way. That was pretty scary. Darcy Graham, at least, looked absolutely magical, as always. He, he is a joy to behold. 
Of course, just as I finished that note, boop, he was in again, a beautiful little stutter step, creating the space he needed, which ain't much, frankly. The Lions, however, were unmoved. It would take a three-point lead very late. Edinburgh had an amazing drive, looking to tie with a penalty or even go up with a try. But in the blink of an eye, they threw it into touch, and the visitors just milked that final minute until the hooter went, grabbing what the comm screeched was, a statement win, as part of what they called the South African onslaught on the URC. Okay, guys, calm down a little bit. It was another kick-in-the-groin defeat, 19-22, to the final score in front of a shell-shocked crowd, to be sure. Yikes. So next was Connacht versus Munster. And you know what? <laughs> Pundits, slow down with the cleverness already. Quote, They've been away three weeks waiting for their new 4G pitch, but there's nothing artificial about their need for a win, unquote. <laughs> they followed that one by... Saying they've missed Jack Cardi may be an understatement, but saying he's a panacea for their woes may be an overstatement. Guys, we haven't even started. Can we ratchet things down like five notches, please? Anyway, they did use a phrase I've never encountered before, saying my conic boys were holding everybody up from the bottom, which is some gorgeous spin doctoring for sure. Um, I was bowled over to learn that my new friend, Bernard Jackman, was on hand for this one. I just this past week was privileged to have him on the show, and he highlighted how big this fixture is. I asked him straight out, you know, what can you say, say to a Connacht fan like myself to keep us going and what keeps bringing people to the sports ground in Galway? And his answer was hope. I was all in for this one. It's a dream start for Connacht, said Birch, as the home side scored their first ever try in their brand spanking new field. Come on, boys. With exactly 10 minutes to go, I was literally fist pumping and my guys were knocking on the door yet again. But no, they coughed it up. And even though they were ahead, I just, in my heart, felt like it was over. But... I suddenly realized I was sitting there listening to the man who just told me on this very podcast that the point of following Connacht was hope, and I decided that's what I would have. Somehow, unlike when one roots for Scotland, it worked. The hope didn't, in fact, kill me. In fact, Connacht managed another gorgeous uh, score to put Munster to bed, and there it was, their first win of the year and their first on the new 4G pitch. I could barely believe it. So incredible. At the very end, my guys win 20-11. to 11. Great job. Zebra versus Stormers was next, and I was pleased to see the home team getting 20 points against their South African guests, but in the end, it, I don't know, to me, it kind of felt like Stormers just took it easy on them a bit, winning comfortably 20-37, to 37, even with a lot of Springboks still missing or just getting back into rotations. The South African teams have started this year incredibly strong, or as they said in that other match, they're onslaught on the URC! Anyway, Leinster versus Sharks ended up being the match I decided to save for later. So I don't have a result for you. Sorry about that. And please, no spoilers. So Scarlets versus Cardiff was next. And this one really looked juicy to me, not just for the Derby aspect, not just because both teams badly needed a win, but as Tom Shanklin pointed out at the time, a game like this one can go a long way to determining who's favored for the Wales squad overall. Anyway, before 10 minutes had gone by, Ray Lilo, he got knocked out cold. It was truly frightening. He did end up leaving by his own power, which is a positive. But of course, they mentioned he's had several concussions in the past, so I very much hope they keep him out of action a good, I don't know, five or six weeks. It was ugly. So it would take Scarlet's 70 minutes to get their first try, Halfpenny making it 10 to 16 as the clock ticked on, the crowd suddenly alive. Quote, plenty of sand left in the, the egg timer, unquote, drolled Shanks. Good stuff. I like that. An incredibly tight back-and-forth struggle to close out this match, but Scarlet's squandered several opportunities at the end and would drop another at home. 10-16 to 16 was your final score. Quick aside, I was very pleased with the officiating 
it, it seemed like the ref was actually concerned for player safety first and foremost, rather than just kind of paying lip service to that notion. So well done on you, Adam Jones. Good stuff. Next up, Ulster versus Ospreys. That one was next. Ulster had beaten Ospreys six out of their last eight matchups. It felt like their home field advantage you know, after a real letdown last week, might make a big difference. It was Michael Lauer's 70th cap for Ulster, while uh, Ospreys looked to be giving a few people some rest, with Alan Wynne-Jones not included in the 23 for the first time this year, I'm pretty sure, um, while living Kendall, Reese Webb would come off the bench. Uh, Ospreys featured Gareth Thomas in the lead-up, sending him out before the rest of the squad in honor of his 100th cap for the club, and he looked like someone who could actually start a, uh, could accidentally start a fire if he was wearing corduroys. Uh, Ulster, they took over... Just a minute to dot down their first score. The visitors' scrum half, who they said was 23, looked closer to 11 years old. And I have to say, he did not necessarily seem up to things as this one began to unfold. Ulster were up 28 to 10 at the intermission. Should have been up more, to me at least. Um, as it unfolded, Ospreys wouldn't score another point until after time had expired. It was a huge bounce-back win for Ulster, 47 to 17 all told. Then... It was Glasgow hosting the Bulls, and the visitors were highlighting Marcel Quetzia, who's had two tries in the first three games, along with 49 tackles to lead the league. And I was already sweating on behalf of my friend John, who we'll be hearing from again very soon, by the way. So please be on the lookout for that. So, Gloucester, they came out firing, built a 4-1 to try lead by the halftime. That, and that, of course, had me worried because of, you know, last year. Uh, the second half collapsed, though. It never materialized this time. And uh, this, you know, this result had to be a big boost of confidence to all their fans everywhere. At the end, the Bulls got a sort of a consolation try, but it wouldn't matter at all. The Warriors getting a sweet home win, 35-21, to 21, a great performance, I would say, overall. And then Benetton versus Dragons was the final match of the round for the URC. And my little, uh, this is a great chance for the Dragons to go on a run theory is, you know, visibly deflating in front of my eyes. Benetton came out firing, and they were blanking their guests as the intermission loomed 17 to zip. Man, oh man. I mean, I guess the flip side of this coin is my both Italian teams will be for real this year. That, that little theory is gaining currency week by week. Uh, by the end, Dragons had managed a couple of tries, but were never truly competitive. Going down to Benetton 34 to 14, I have serious worries about their season. At least they've already gotten a home win, so, you know, better than last year, right? And that, my friends, was how round four and the reviews would end. Well, by the music, you'll know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award, and this week, the award goes to... to Vita Lee. Mr. Lee, you've been the leading try scorer for the entire NPC this year, you scored a hat trick last weekend. You got another one this weekend. And frankly, you've been a terror on both sides of the ball all season long. You know, all your superpowers weren't quite enough this time for your team to advance. But nevertheless, for me, you were the standout player and are well deserving of this, this most prestigious of awards. Congratulations, good sir. For you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck. Well done. And see you next year. So, of course, that brings us to our updates and previews. So, we're going to start, of course, with the Rugby World Cup 2021. The pool stages carry on this week featuring on Saturday, Scotland versus Australia, USA versus Japan, France versus England, and then on Sunday, it'll be Italy versus Canada. Ooh, good one. Wales versus New Zealand, and finally, Fiji versus South Africa. France versus England. Ooh, that's going to go a long way to telling us, you know, 
quite a bit about how the rest of this entire event is going to unfold, no doubt. Of course, down in the NPC, it's the semifinals. Uh, things are right down to the wire in New Zealand for this year. I can, yeah, I can tell you, I'm already missing this competition. It's kind of, I guess that's silly. Anyway, semifinal the first will bring on Friday the 14th, Wellington versus Auckland, while semifinal the second has the following day, Canterbury versus Bay of Plenty. If you cornered me and demanded to know my picks for the, for the final, well, first off, why would you do that? Back off, man. Leave me alone. But seriously, I would go with Wellington for the first one. And you know what? I'm going to go with my heart on this one. Bay of Plenty to make the final as well. Swinging back up to France in the top 14, it'll be round seven for the French competition. That'll, of course, bring six Saturday matches and just the one on Sunday. Do these teams ever get a week off, by the way? So we start with Brie versus Toulouse, Perpignan versus Clermont, Cast versus Bayon, uh, Poe will be against Stade Francais, Montpellier will face Lyon, and Bordeaux-Begla will be at home for Racing 92. Sunday's fixture is, of course, La Rochelle versus Toulon, and it should be an absolute cracker, that one. Then, over in the Premiership, it'll be round six. By the way, I think while I wasn't looking, the Prem went and did adjust the schedule so that they can get six matches per week, as they had originally intended. Um, that's, some, that's pretty impressive administrative logistics, to be sure. So, Friday, it'll be Sale versus London Irish. The four Saturday fixtures are Exeter versus Wasps, Gloucester hosting a badly wounded Bristol Bears team, Northampton States taking on erratic Newcastle Falcons, while Saracens will employ the tractor beam to bring Bath into the confines of their Death Star. You know what? I think I have to stop with the Star Wars references. It's becoming onerous. Anyway, on Sunday, it'll be Harlequins facing Leicester, a fixture that has Game of the Week written all over it. So just quickly, let's take a look at that league table after round five. So apparently, if you want to be undefeated in the Prem, your name has to begin with the letters S-A. So Saracens are there at the top, with Sale also 4-0. That, that snuck up on me, I have to say. Uh, Exeter and Bristol both have three wins apiece, while the two-win club includes Harlequins, Northampton, Gloucester, and Leicester. Wasps, London Irish, and Newcastle all just have one victory, and Bath are sitting on a big fat goose egg at the bottom. The table points are already far apart from the bottom to top, with Ceres at 20 and Bath at just 4, which is even more frightening when you realize Saracens have only played 4 games to Bath's 5s. 5. Yikes. So in the URC, round 5 of the URC looks very exciting, with on Friday, Ospreys hosting the Stormers in Swansea. Oh, yikes, that's kind of dangerous. As well as my Conic boys looking to put in a good showing, I guess, against the Leinster juggernaut. On Saturday, Lions welcome Ulster to the uh, Emirate Airlines Park. The Sharks host the unpredictable Glasgow Warriors. Cardiff face off against the Staggering Dragons. Snakebit Edinburgh will hopefully not make the mistake of underestimating this visiting Benetton team. And Scarlets are at home for Zebre. Then finally, a potentially in-crisis mode Munster are back at Thoman Park for the powerful Bulls. After this upcoming round, we're going to take a look at this table as well, as I think you know this coming weekend will be very telling in many ways. Well, my friends, that does it for another week. I'm so excited for this World Cup in particular. It's it's that weird feeling you have when you sort of you wait and you wait and you feel like something's never going to happen then bam, it starts up and you're like, "What? Already?" So it's going to be an amazing tournament. And along with the semifinals and the NPC this weekend and the ongoing drama in the top 14 Prem and the URC, I mean, there's just so much great rugby afoot. The footy's afoot. So it's probably almost time to check back in with the Super 6 as well, which had completely fallen off my radar, I admit. So, as always, thanks again for coming along to all of you across the globe. Cheers. Talk to you soon and be well. <laughs>